Well, uh, welcome everybody. Uh, before we begin, why don't we just say a quick word of prayer? Uh, let's pray, Heavenly Father, for uh, everyone gathered this morning. Uh, um, I would give you great thanks and uh, for this opportunity to teach. Send your Holy Spirit as we think about um, life in a post-Christian era, Lord. Um, uh, help us uh, to speak into this world. Uh, for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, um, <clears throat> well, Brandon's not here today. Uh, if you weren't here last week, this is the second in a, a six-part series that Brandon Bennett and I are doing together. Uh, he uh, has the weekend off to go home to visit family in Florida. Um, and then uh, next week, by the way, is Memorial Day weekend. Uh, we're going to take that weekend off, and we'll start back up again. What is that? June 4th, I think, is Pentecost. Um, <clears throat> and actually, today's uh, topic... Um, which is about uh, speaking uh, in the vernacular is appropriate for the idea of Pentecost. Um, so it probably would have been a better lesson for that. But but we're uh, but we're going in a sort of order. Uh, come on in. There are a few more seats on this side. Feel free to cross in front of me. That's fine. And we have some chairs too. If you need to um, pull out some folding chairs, the table can be comfortable. Uh, I asked for a bigger room, but we just don't have one. You know, I mean, just this place is uh, the blessing of being an old building downtown. Uh, we just ha- sort of have to make do sometimes. Um, but so glad that you all are here. So the, the assumption about this six-part series is that we actually live in a post-Christian era, um, which sometimes I tell people that in the Bible Belt, and they're like, what in the world are you talking about? Like, everybody I know is a Christian, um, everybody uh, I know goes to church. Well, it's still the South, so we um, I think are that's still that's true to a certain extent. You know, um, um, much more than the rest of the country. However, we're a part of the United States, and where it goes, often the South sort of um, you know will will follow along, um, even in, with that respect. I just started reading this book uh, by a British author called Unapologetic. And listen to what he said. This is written in uh, 2013, so only four years ago. In Britain, uh, where I live, recent figures suggest that about 6% of the population goes regularly to church. So this is in the UK, okay? 6%, and it's a number that has drifted uh, steadily downward over the past few decades, while the average age of churchgoers has just as steadily trended upward. So... um, people going to church are older and older, right? Um, <clears throat> where am I? Uh, presently, the average worshiper is 51 years old. In the United States, by contrast, the equivalent figure from 2006, it's about 10 years ago, is 26%. So I gather that it's probably actually worse since that was 10, 11 years ago. 26% of people, he's saying, uh, claim to regularly go to church in the United States with a youthful, rosy-cheeked age distribution. (laughs) Um, That's not all, though. Some surveys tellingly reveal that a further 16% of Americans claim to be regular churchgoers. From the British perspective, this second statistic is even more startling and alien than the first. The idea of people pretending to be regular churchgoers because it will make them look virtuous. Um, so statistics uh, are, uh, aren't entirely accurate. However, we know from, from statistics, at least, that the majority of Americans just don't go to church. They, they just don't. And so that's a fruit of 
um, of the spiritual um, state of, of Americans, you know. And I mean, a lot of the folks who are going to church, of course, aren't believers anyway. Um, we can't assume that everybody there is. So what I'm saying is that in the United States, we live post-Christendom. Christendom is the idea that that's the prevailing and maybe even state-enforced uh, religion of a nation. That's just not true in the United States, although it's hard for us to see because Christianity or the Judeo-Christian ethic is a part of the sort of moral furniture of our lives. Uh, it still exists in sort of our language, um, maybe even our institutions, courthouses having the Ten Commandments in front of them, things like that. Um, but uh, it's just the case that you, we, we now live in a nation uh, that is not majority uh, Christian or at least churchgoer. Um, and that will become increasingly the, the case in the South. I just uh, got, a, 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 you know, the Barna group that does research. I got their, um, they, they put out ones for each city, major city in the area and uh, in, in, the, in the United States and in each state. And Birmingham is the third most church-going city in the United States. So that's difficult for us to see. The Birmingham, Anniston, Tuscaloosa area, which is skewed because Tuscaloosa, Anniston, probably more church-going than urban Birmingham. Um, but the, our, our, our region is the third most church-going after like uh, Nashville and somewhere else, I forget, Nashville or Chattanooga, um, Tennessee. You can't throw a rock without hitting a church is the joke. Um, but, <clears throat> but we live in the third most church going versus like a place where I grew up, San Francisco, is sort of at the bottom, <laughs> towards the bottom of the list, right? Um, so it's, that, that's why I say it's difficult for us to see, though there are probably people that you know in your life who you think, gosh, you know, my own kids, my adult children who I raised, you know, why aren't they... Uh, uh, Christians anymore are going to church. Well, it's that's the the state of the nation. Um, so that's the 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 um, the uh, assumption uh, across the board with this entire class, the six part series, um, that uh, that uh, we live in post Christendom. But the thing I also want to say about that is people are still religious. That's why people will say things like I'm spiritual but not religious. Most most people in the United States still are deists. They might not be Christian, but they, leave, they believe in an unknown God. The Acts reading for today, and I put that um, uh, uh, there, um, it was a part of a church in Connecticut where there was a man who often did the prayers of the people, and he would pray that our nation would return to the fundamental Christian principles on which our nation was founded. And I thought every week we were founded on deism. I mean, you know, I mean, we were not founded on a, a Christian. Um, sort of fundamental Christian principles in the way that he talks about it. We are a product of Enlightenment thinking. I mean, the French Revolution, things like that. That that this isn't anything new. This has been going on for for hundreds of years, and we're just now starting to see very acute effects of it in our own lives and in, in places like the South. So that's kind of where we are. And like I said, it can be difficult to see, but you probably. Um, um, see this and, and just imagine, you know, if this continues, where will a place like Birmingham, Alabama, uh, central Alabama be in 30 years? Not to be a sort of, um, I don't know, alarmist or anything. I'm just trying to be realistic, right? Um, and, uh, and as someone mentioned last time, that often when the church is not in the dominant culture, that can be helpful. We actually 
um, are better versions of ourself when uh, we're not in the dominant culture. Because when we're in the dominant culture, it's easy to be become a sort of institution and take things for granted, and we begin to look more and more like any sort of club. Uh, and uh, but when we're not in the dominant culture, we have to begin uh, uh, to be to think like missionaries. So another thing that I bring to you is not just the sort of the assumption that we live in post-Christendom, but the the main thing uh, Brandon and I are trying to get across with this sort of series is tr- starting to think missionally, like missionaries. I talk to missionaries who work internationally. Um, uh, there's a missionary that we support here. I've talked to him about this. Um, uh, there's a couple that we support also that does Bible translation in uh, Asia. I've talked to them about this. And I have good friends of mine who work in a sort of clandestine activity in the Middle East doing missionary work. And I talked to them about about um, how what they do in those countries where it's actually what they're doing is often illegal uh, translates real well even to, to, to Alabama uh, in terms of trying to communicate uh, the Christian message. And so we have to recap. We, we would do well as we move forward. Uh, you know, we can think about where will we be in 30 years and start to think like missionaries then and be playing catch up. Or we can sort of see where things are kind of going. You know, we're still the top third church going city in the United States. But that's declining, right, with the rest of the nation. Um, we can see where we're going to, to probably end up looking more like any other sort of major metropolitan area in the United States and start to think like missionaries now uh, so that when it catches up to us finally in 30 years, we won't be like, well, what happened? <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, and I don't know what to do about it anymore. <clears throat> and it actually will it, it'll do double duty because it's effective now. You know, being a missionary, we should always be missionaries. Um, so that uh, is the sort of main implication of the um, the, the class uh, for this series. And so there are two topics uh, related to, to, to missionary work um, that I want us to think about for sharing the gospel. Um, I have it listed backwards here. I'm going to flip that. You don't need to know that. One is um, contextualization. And the other is speaking in the vernacular. And speaking in the vernacular flows out of the bigger idea of contextualization. Stay with me. I know I'm using a big word. Um, this is something that missionaries study is the topic of contextualization. Uh, that when, what, what, when, you are, um, when you are going to a foreign culture, whether that's even in, in your own nation um, or in, a, in another nation, if you're going to a culture that's foreign to you and you're a Christian and you hope that your Christian witness will um, uh, come to bear on people's lives, that you'll be able to speak the gospel to them, you do not want to lose your core uh, doctrine, right? You, you want to maintain your orthodoxy. And so what are the essentials and what are things that we often... Uh, confused with our religion that are are actually a part of our culture. And when we go into a new culture, we have to be able to discern the difference. Because sometimes the things that we take with us from our culture that we confuse with our Christianity will alienate people for all the wrong reasons. We want the core doctrines of Christianity to alienate them and not... Uh, we hope that they'll, they'll, they'll be convicted by it. But there are things that are stumbling blocks 
and foolishness to people about the gospel. It's just that's the way it is. So let's not give them any more <laughs> to be to sort of to to look at us uh, quizzically about, right? So here's the classic example that people give when they talk about contextualization. I can't remember the guy's name, but a couple hundred years ago, um, um, there were some English missionaries in China, um, and uh, they they brought with them all their Englishness and the gospel. And um, and often this would ha- end up happening with English missionaries and missionaries from a lot of countries. It's called colonialism, where you also want to impose Western values on the country that aren't uh, Christianity. And the missionaries, you know, were wearing uh, English garb and suits and keeping their hair like Englishmen and eating English food, you know, and then trying to share the gospel and hitting total, like just. Not, not, it's not working. It wasn't working. And there was this one guy who started to wear his hair long. This is 200 years ago, an Englishman. <laughs> started to wear his hair long like the Chinese men and wore the Chinese garb. I mean, he was a white guy, so he did, obviously didn't look Chinese, but he was trying to entrench himself in the culture, and he started eating the Chinese food. And he started to have an effect, to, to be involved in the people's lives. Uh, so that he was actually sitting at table with them. I mean, sitting around a a dinner table is a great place to talk about Jesus. But if you're sort of over here eating your uh, blood sausage and eggs every morning and the Chinese people are over here, you're just not going to have that opportunity, right? Um, But I talked to my friend uh, who's in the Middle East a couple weeks ago about this and said the story, and he said, actually, where I am, if I wore the Middle Eastern garb, people would just laugh at me. But there are other ways that I contextualize that has to do with not just knowing Arabic, but the way to speak Arabic in the local dialect. So here's the vernacular piece, that language also flows out of this idea of contextualization. Um, And I want to say to you that the idea of... um, But let me back up to... Let me finish with contextualization and get to the vernacular. So contextualization is a bridge from a particular culture to the gospel. Um, And the church is guilty of just uh, either launching with a full frontal assault of the Bible and it just falls on deaf ears because nobody understands the the Bible over here and no cultural connection. Christians are also guilty sometimes of cultural relevancy with no bridge to the scriptures. So contextualization isn't relevancy for relevancy's sake. It's... um, Sympathy and uh, and flexibility and uh, sort of cultural sensibility and understanding, so to connect the message of the gospel. What are the greatest <laughs> hopes and fears and ambitions and concerns of a particular culture? The false idols. Well, as I was walking around Athens, that's the passage I handed out to you. Craig didn't preach. Um, uh, on it this morning, but it was in our, one of our readings. As I was, Paul says, as I was walking around Athens, I noticed that you were a religious people. And when I was walking, I noticed uh, there was an altar to an unknown God. Well, let me tell you about the unknown God. So he was contextualizing. He was paying attention to the Athenian culture, walking around with an open mind, and paying attention to what are the greatest hopes and fears of this culture and needs, what's the sort of foothold on which I can say uh, it, uh, the, the, God, the God of Christianity, Jesus Christ, is the answer 
to those, um, those idolatries, basically. So that's contextualization. And vernacular is a piece of it, which is the speaking of the, the native language um, to a culture, uh, in a culture. And I want to say that this is native to Anglicanism. Well, the Episcopal Church is part of worldwide Anglican communion. Uh, Anglicanism was not just founded with Henry VIII, who wanted a divorce. He actually didn't get a divorce. He got an annulment. Um, Anglicanism has been around for much longer than that. Um, there's been a, a, a Christian presence in the British Isles uh, since uh, the first few centuries A.D. Um, <clears throat> and there was a, a, uh, even a little bit after that, um, uh, when uh, the British Isles were still pagan territory, there was some Christian presence, and they would send missionaries there. Pope Gregory the Great in 597 sent a guy named Canterbury, uh, uh, Augustine of Canterbury, not St. Augustine of Hippo that we know, or Augustine, um, which is a city in Florida. Um, <laughs> not, not that Augustine, but another guy, Augustine of Canterbury. By the way, I've been to his, his tomb is still there in Canterbury, which I think is just a sort of great illustration of how Anglic- Anglicanism should own something like this versus something like a, a pope's tomb, right? Uh, um, um, the Archbishop of Canter- first Archbishop of Canterbury's uh, grave in, in Canterbury, Augustine, is just this pile of little rocks. I thought that was great and humble. But anyway, Pope Gregory the Great sent this guy, Augustine, to be a missionary uh, to the British. And um, this is from this book just called Anglicanism. There's a little preface and then a quote from Gregory about contextualization and you could say the idea of speaking the vernacular. So historians have rightly stressed the wisdom of Pope Gregory's famous letter to Augustine in which he advises him not necessarily to impose upon the newly formed church of the English all the usages and customs with which he had been familiar at Rome. And here's the quote. For things are not to be loved for the sake of places, but places for the sake of good things. Choose therefore from every church those things that are pious, religious, and upright, and when you have, as it were, made uh, them up into one body, let the minds of the English be accustomed thereunto. So he's saying, you know, you've spent a lot of time in Rome and you're go- you recognize you're going to a different type of place. So don't think that your model for ministry in Rome is going to work in England. You've got to pay attention to the local culture. Uh, and there might be some things that are pious that are a foothold for you. As I was walking around Athens, I noticed that there's an altar to an unknown god. Well, let me tell you about him. Um, and so, that, but I think that that idea has 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 been native to Anglicanism all along. And we saw this with the Reformation, where one of the biggest first accomplishments of the Protestant Reformation in England was translating the prayer book from Latin into English. And that was the vulgar language. Uh, it was more academic and upper crust to have documents in Latin. It was much more debased to even begin to think about things uh, in these, thys, and thous. Isn't that ironic? Because now we read that and we're like, this is fancy pants, Elizabethan language. That was the slang. That was the street language. They They were translating it into the street language of the people so that they can understand the gospel. They can't understand it in Latin because most of them, unless they have an education, don't read Latin. A lot of them are illiterate. You might just you might think, for example, in uh, 1 Corinthians, when Paul says, 
Uh, now, brothers, uh, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if uh, with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air, hot air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. I love this line. If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? And we're talking about spiritual warfare between the powers of, uh, uh, of, of the spiritual powers of hell. I mean, the, the gospel is the bugle. And I mean, it needs to it needs to make a distinct uh, sound so people can hear that clarion call and know what we're talking about. I mean, this is a, a biblical idea of speaking uh, in the vernacular. And so you see contextualization in, uh, uh, in uh, uh, not just here in First Corinthians. Paul was a master at this. This is why he was the, the apostle to the Gentiles. Uh, you know, he goes first to the synagogues, but he, then when they won't hear what he has to say, he, he goes out and speaks uh, to the Gentiles. And we see that here uh, in Athens, um, contextualization. Let me, um, good. Let me uh, tell you one story. I've told the story a few times, so forgive me if you've heard it before. Because the, the reason this stands out to me is it was like one of those, I've had other moments like it, but it was one of those moments where a light bulb went off and I was like, this is what I was made to do. This is what I was called to do. This is what my ministry has to be about. Um, I was uh, in New York City with a good friend um, who was having a, a real rough time. Um, and he's no millennial. I mean, he and I are a little bit older than millennials. People often equate like this sort of secular drift from Christianity with a millennial culture. There are baby boomers and older people that I know who who embody this sort of culture as well. Um, but so this is a guy who's uh, you know about uh, 40 or so who was really having a rough time um, and uh, living in New York City, which you know just imagine what that's like on trying to have a career and have relationships and whatnot. And um, and uh, we're sitting at, at a bar drinking some beers and. Um, and I wanted to talk about Jesus, but I knew that if I just sort of, you know, launched out of the gates, bringing Jesus into the equation, he would be like, you know, I know you're a Christian man. I don't want to hear that stuff. Right. Um, I knew that I had to uh, be sort of paying attention to what he was saying and open to what the foothold is. The thing about this sort of contextualization thing is you can't always prepare in the moment. You can prepare your life and your study and prayer. But in the moment, you just sort of have to be open to what it is. And he started talking about um, how his life is a mess and using the language of dirtiness and mess. And he said, well, someone once told me when my life's a mess to clean up my room. And he meant that literally, like when your life's falling apart to, like, get, to get organized. But he also meant that interiorly, like I need to clean up my act. And so I started talking to him about the show Hoarders. Have you seen this on AMC for like 20 minutes? And I said, uh, I sort of got to the point where I said, I've noticed that the, the, the cleaning up for hoarders, who are people who are like addicted to hoarding, right? I mean, real, uh, real problem. Never um, 
succeed, um, there's usually uh, some sort of psychotherapist or counselor. There's a, um, an organization expert, and there are three sort of people in these people's lives for each episode. The sort of psychotherapist type, the professional organizer, and some sort of family member, members or friends. And I, what I said is, I've noticed that if any one of those three, and usually it's a family member, uh, sort of a loved one, is, is judgmental in any sense, they end up failing. Like they might clean for a little while and then they'll do like three months later thing and it's just sort of like life is falling apart again. Usually the psychotherapists are good at what they do and the organization experts know about this stuff because that's what they do for a living and they see it all the time. But the family members usually have some deep-seated resentment and this is a symptom of something else in life that they hate them for anyway. And so they're there and they're just like, and usually they'll say, I just want to bring a dump truck and pour it all in there and get rid of it, you know what I mean? And, and it's just the person, it, it's not helpful. I mean, these are deeply wounded people. Uh, and and my, my, I was trying to get at the idea of grace. And I mean, I talked to him about this for like a half hour, and finally, this is a half hour of hoarders, about an hour, hour and a half of talking <laughs> over beers, and finally I said, I want to let you know that I'm actually talking about Jesus Christ. Oh. And like, can I, can I say a little bit more about that? And he, I, he had, I had a hearing for like three to five minutes. But if in the beginning, when he started talking about how sort of depressed he was and whatnot, that I said, well, you just got to you just got to accept Jesus. It wouldn't have worked it would, because because why? Because he lives in post Christendom, New York City. He might as well be a pagan in, in, in Athens in the first century. Uh, the, I was speaking. I would be speaking a foreign language to him and actually one that he doesn't like, because um, a lot of folks like him have um, have a bad taste in his mouth for some things that Christians have um, done in his life. Well, anyway, so that's contextualization and, uh, and, and speaking in the vernacular. Um, I, I mentioned that the six uh, sessions of this class are based on um, what Timothy Keller in a book called Center Church, which is a book for, mis- for ministers. It's like a textbook no light reading like if you know and it's expensive so don't worry if you're not going to read it right read one of his uh, popular books instead but he wrote this book a couple years ago for ministry practitioners like me and he he gives the six marks of mission and when he's explaining this mark that's what's on the back side this is what he has to say A missional church, if it is to reach people in a post-Christian culture, must recognize that most of our more recently formulated and popular gospel presentations will fall on deaf ears because hearers will be viscerally offended or simply unable to understand the basic concepts of God, sin, and redemption. This fact does not, however, require a change in the classic Christian doctrines, but rather skillfulness in contextualizing them so our gospel presentations are compelling even to the people who are not yet fully persuaded by them. Within Christendom, it was possible to simply exhort Christianized people to do what they knew they should do. Christian communicators now must enter, challenge, and retell the culture's stories with the gospel. It is the traditional gospel of salvation by sheer grace that gives us both the internal confidence and the humility to do contextualization. Um, Well, um, I've said enough. We've got about a little more than 10 minutes for discussion, which I'm excited about. So I hope you'll, we had a great discussion last time. Any thoughts on, on this stuff? 
By the way, this is for you. I mean, this is for you. I'm not talking about ministers. This is for believers. <laughs> okay? Yeah, I saw a hand. Yeah. What do you think, or how do you judge the root causes of the changes? Why New York and San Francisco so unchristian compared to our whatever degree of Christianity we have? Yeah, I, I mean, I can venture some guesses, and you can too, probably. I'm not as much of an expert on that, you know, why this is the cultural drift is happening um, as some other folks are. I mentioned last time that, you know, um, present-day United States is still a product of Enlightenment thinking from a couple, a few hundred years ago in the Renaissance, uh, and we've been living in the wake of that, and it's just taken a while for sometimes that thinking to, to enmesh itself into popular culture. I think, you know, and we've been noticing this for decades. People have been getting up in arms about um, how does the Christian um, community respond to the culture? Like there is one, there isn't. Um, and, you know, this is what's given rise to things like the religious right, um, which um, tries to affect culture through political action. And we've noticed that that's actually, for the most part, uh, kind of failed because what is actually, you know, you can try to get to people and they're thinking through the coercion of law, but we're noticing that, uh, you know, I went to Yale. (laughs) (laughs) Yale and Harvard and Princeton and UAB and Montevallo and MTV the internet, Facebook, those things are having much more of an effect on people's lives than uh, the way we vote. Usually politics are kind of 10 to 20 years behind what we're seeing um, in, in, in popular culture. I mean, with the, the legalization of um, a gay, gay marriages last year, you know, people were shocked. <laughs> I'm not shocked at all. I mean, I've been seeing this for 20 years. I mean... I, I grew up in San Francisco. I mean, this is, I mean, we should be, this is, we're, the, 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 the laws are behind where the culture has been, is what I'm saying. Uh, that wasn't any statement about sexuality, though I have plenty to say about that. Um, uh, that the, the art and popular culture and media and uh, academic institutions are, for the most part, anti-gospel. Uh, and I'm not trying to be, again, I'm not trying to be an alarmist. I love going to the movies. I went to an Ivy League school, for God's sake. Um, but uh, it just that's, just that's just what it is. And it's been that way for a while. I mean, uh, uh, a lot of these institutions, academic institutions, were going this way even in the 19th century. The differences between the 19th and the 20th and now into the 21st century is that people were still deists, at least, now it's just like whatever you want. The prevailing uh, idol of, uh, of Western culture is individualism. And, um, uh, and you could say uh, another um, aspect of that is consumerism. And so religious, religion is a free marketplace. You can consume it. What, I mean, did people talk about church shopping 20 years ago? Probably not. So now we view religion as a, as a, a, a commodity w- with which we, uh, uh, that, that we can consume. Yeah, Hughes, did you have a question? Or no, Kelly. I yeah. did. I was just going to say, um, like five years ago for me personally, I probably, in my daily walk of life, whether I'm driving through the Red Mountain, express coffee or Old Henry's, 
I wouldn't have said God bless you or blessings or just the things that I say, even in a salutation in an email. And now I, I kind of let my faith out wherever I am freely. Yeah. And I feel like it's more receptive now than it ever was. Huh. Because I feel like we're all kind of doing it, not just within this church, but outside, whether it's my 17-year-old daughter or outside. And if we're close to Christians, I feel like it's me personally. We need to. I feel like it's on the rise. I, I don't you feel like, like Christianity is on the rise? Yeah. It's in my own experience. I feel like the more I share it, the more it's received. And so it doesn't matter where I am around Birmingham. Right. Um, I feel like the more I say it, the more somebody that I don't even know. I've got a retail store in Homewood, and I'll play on Sonus. I'm either playing contemporary Christian music or Van Morrison. And then we'll, one of the girls, who, we have a bunch of girls who were at J.H. Ranch. You know, they work for us part-time, and they'll turn on Need Free. You know, and then it'll be Van Morrison after that. We're playing all day long. And people walk in the store and go, thank you for playing that. And so I feel this receptive nature going on. I, to me, it feels like, is our church growing? I feel like it is. Yeah, I know it is. And I remember, like, yeah. I feel like numbers are coming up. In so, spite of, and I hear what you're saying, but sometimes I feel like there's more reception than. Sure. Um Remember that where you live is yeah. a bubble, yeah, exactly. and um, and and uh, and and by the way, uh, the suburbs like over the mountain or even Gardendale um, are completely different culture than where I, li- I live in Crestwood. It's completely different culture, um, and, and so uh, and also remember Birmingham, Anniston, Tuscaloosa, number three church-going place in the United States. So we're still there. And actually, we if we're if we're confronted with the the culture that um, that scares us, sometimes uh, we might react and amplify our Christianity. So that's one possibility uh, as well. But I will say that if the if the culture is going in the direction of being less Christian. Uh, we 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 need to own our Christian identity and not hide it. Also, um, that uh, that it's actually going to make it worse for us if we go underground. <coughs> there needs to be Christians in places like academia, the arts, Hollywood, uh, uh, politics, etc. If I didn't say that, so you know, who are saying God bless you and things like that? Yeah, Libby. Well, because I work where I work, I pray for the particular person that I. And I have found that I see so drastically, dramatically, the difference of my interaction with them because I've prayed with them or prayed for them than if I just prayed generally, me and God in the morning, I'm aware of just me and God for a couple hours. Then, then I've prayed about any interaction I might have that day. But somehow that specific prayer, but that specific opportunity. Sure, yeah. to open... Not, not, not only open avenues and open areas that might not be open, but God knows my seriousness when I've asked Him to be over it and give me wisdom and the right words and the shut my mouth when I need to, which is difficult for me. But, but I just think the prayer is, is so essential. Yeah, I mean, opportunity. you know, uh, I will add to contextualization and speaking in the vernacular that it. You know, anything that's a, a mark of a missional church or being missionaries should be undergirded with prayer. Um, and I, I've experienced exactly what you're talking about, Libby, in terms of 
if there are particular people in my life that you know I'm hoping for the opportunity um, to speak the gospel to them, if I don't pray about that, I will turn them into projects and they will sniff it out. <laughs> uh, but the Holy Spirit being brought into the equation prayerfully uh, usually uh, adds to the sort of creative flexibility in those times of conversation and whatnot. Sometimes that I just, I'm like, I don't even know how that came out of me. It must have been God at work. Yeah, John. Uh, if you didn't hear uh, Mike Pence's uh, address to graduating class at Grove City College yesterday, I'd highly recommend it. But he does exactly what you're saying. Okay. He mentions uh, God five times. I looked at it again this morning kind of critically. And then mentions uh, a verse from the Old Testament. He mentions a verse Jesus said. And it's about faith, integrity, courage persistence, but it's all blended in. His faith is blended in with it, and I really highly recommend it. It takes at least uh, 15 minutes to read, which is really... Is a, not a recording for it? It's, it's, on, uh, it's on AOL. Okay. Yeah. Just a quick question. You know, we've been speaking generally, primarily about the United States. How yeah. globally, you know, post-Soviet Union, the third world countries, would you not say that... <clears throat> Christianity is more or less on the rise, and probably a lot more so. Yeah, it's on the rise in places like Africa and uh, Asia. And even in you know, places yeah. like Poland and uh, yeah. Yeah, the former Soviet bloc countries that were repressed for, for so many decades. Sure, and yeah. Now, I, I just, you know, just from my, my you know, rudimentary reading on, on the subject, it seems to me that they are progressing a lot more than, than say, the United States. The United States, the United States probably is about as good as it's ever going to get unless some of the drastic changes in terms of what you said the post uh yeah i mean uh you know i i, I pray that um god will stem the tide uh I just i'm not seeing it um or that christ will come again but uh before that day and um but yes in places like africa christianity is rising um often simultaneously orthodox christianity on the rise and Developing nations, prosperity gospel is on the rise too, uh, which is not there's no gospel at all. It's another religion, so that can that can muddy the statistical waters a little bit. Yeah, Wilson. Yeah. Um, well, this is just going back to what you said about contextualization and that conversation you had with your friend in New York. Um, how I, I see the need for that, like in the interactions I have with yeah. people at the hospital at UAB and at school, but. How, I guess I have been wondering, how do you become better at sort of extemporaneously doing that? You know, do you just have to do it? Or are there things that you found helpful yeah. to, like, so that we can bring that into our lives, I guess? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, pr- yes, I think, I think, I mean, <laughs> the, the Advent doesn't do this often, but you need to pray and read your Bibles. <laughs> I, I mean, you don't often hear that from your Advent clergy. But, uh, I, you know, when it comes to this stuff, like, you really, I mean, daily devotional activity is, is having a life that's saturated by the gospel. Um, you know, at least in terms of our own effort, that's like, I feel like the most we can really do, you know? And I, But I think... Um, 
uh, sort of concern and sympathy uh, and not a place of sort of better than and judgment, a sort of heart <coughs> disposition is super helpful. Yeah, last idea. Um, you know, I think, and going back to the blood sausage and the Chinese food, I think being able to, um, you know, sin is an unpopular word. You yeah. Know, people don't like the word or they don't admit that it exists. I think in this day and age where it seems to be a purification of the church, where, you know, there's decline in attendance, but it seems like people that are leaving are people that were just there just for cultural reasons or um, just checking the box or, you know, a road thing. Um, I feel like it's easy to, it's easier to talk about idols than it is to bring up. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Everybody has to admit that they're living for something. Yeah, everybody worships something. Yeah, yeah, so I think in a contextualization aspect, it's easier to talk about, in, in the area hey, I'm seeing that there's uh, idols. Y'all yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's easy to talk about idols. And, and, uh, yeah, I... Because you go to, talking about California churches, you go into those churches and it's like, it's not a popular thing to be there. Right. The people that are there are people that are really, uh, you know... I think it's a good thing in a way, or, or at least Christ is bringing the good out of the bad of the declining uh, church attendance that you really, you have to want to... You have to kind of own it if you're yeah. in a place like California yeah. or San Francisco at least. Maybe not Orange County, and, and, but... And kind of what um, I'm saying is that there's, we're to blame for the decline. We yeah. Christians, through cultural reasons, have become to be known as judgmental, uh, self-righteous, hypocritical, which we all are, of course, and, and yeah, one way or another. Yeah. But in the culture, we're known as that, and that's <coughs> become unpopular for good reasons. People don't want to be associated with us, and now Christ is purifying the church, which is now we've got to go back and be missional. And, Thank, great thoughts. We need to wrap up. I'm sorry. Um, but yes, we're all hypocrites. Sin is at the root. Sin is at the root, I think. That was the first question. Um, but we don't want to always call it that because we'll alienate people. <laughs> Just saying. And, you know, I mean, it depends on who you're talking to. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Yeah.